It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures if you haven't already and turn to Genesis 12, one of my favorite Christmas passages. And we continue in our series, Christmas Foretold, as we consider Old Testament passages that point to the birth, the life, and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do find again and again Uh, The whole of Scripture takes us, the reader, through the redemptive history of how God has and will work in our world. And in a Christmas season, we must ask ourselves how God works in the world. Because whether you are an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, a Muslim, a mystic, or a faithful follower of Christ, we have many of the same questions. If God is real, why is this world so messed up? And if I buy into the biblical account of sin and rebellion that we heard last week in Genesis 3, how can it all get fixed? Christmas is a religious holiday in which we know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But historically, we take the winter solstice as a time in our yearly calendar to celebrate the birth of a Savior. So our question is, if Jesus was born, if he's the offspring of Eve, if if he brings restoration, why don't I experience any kind of blessing in this life now? As someone who didn't personally grow up in a Christian family, I became a faithful follower of Christ as an adult. And Christmas season has often struck me as an odd one. Uh, Millions of broken people in this world asking big questions of life and God and circumstance and trial, suffering perhaps. Christmas would seem to be the perfect time for the body of Christ to be able to offer a clarifying word on how God is and has been at work in this world. But I think in the spirit of decorations and cookies and fun songs and snowmen and presents and warm holiday cheer, sometimes the idea of Christmas and and the the purpose of Christ's birth, it it can get muddled. The non-religious look at Christmas and they may nod their head to the idea of Jesus coming as a man. They may nod their head to the idea that he was born, not just to be a baby, but to live a life that we never could and to die on a cross for sins, to rise again, to bring new life. Well, this time of year, they may even attend service and pay some kind of lip service to that. But are we, faithful followers of Christ, are we clear at this time of year what it all means and how it affects our day-to-day life? Well, our main point this morning is simply this. Jesus is the one who brings blessing. Now, whether you've explicitly said it or not, it's likely very intuitive to your thinking. Blessing is what this world and our hearts are really after, especially during Christmas. We want some kind of grace, favor, and good fortune. We want good luck, miracles, kindness, some kind of bougie gift or a vibe of doing well. We want blessings. Now, you may look forward in the warm, cozy feels of a Christmas season. You may seek blessing in watching those you love who seem happy. 
you may seek blessing in some material or physical way, whether it's a, a gift, money, physical or relational health. We operate no different than the world around us. We wake up every day wanting some kind of blessing, trying to figure out how to get it, maybe scheming how we could obtain it. Well, God has a word for us, brothers and sisters. He's given us a story of a man named Abraham, who was not so different from you and I. He's given us a biblical revelation of how we receive blessing, especially in a Christmas season. So would you read with me, please, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God's word records and says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, this is God's word, and first in our passage this morning, I'd like us to consider God's call, God's call out of darkness. Now, I think we get this directly from verse 1. We read at the end of chapter 11 that Abram's father, Terah, was moving the family from the country or the land of Ur to the land of Canaan. Now, if you've ever seen the map of this region, perhaps you have one in the back of your Bible or you've Googled it. The land of Ur is located somewhere where it would be modern day Iraq. And the land of Canaan is what we would know as Israel or the Gaza or part of Jordan. And between these two locations is a giant desert. So Terah is taking the fam and saying, we're, we're, we're leaving. We're, we're moving. We're seeking other opportunities. We're leaving Ur, we're going to Canaan, there's this giant desert in between. Now, Terah, he didn't stop and ask for directions. He knew that he would go north towards Haran, modern-day Turkey. So he takes the family, and they stop halfway in Haran, and we read in the text that Terah was an older man. His full life had come, and he died. Now, chapter 12 picks up, and we see chronologically that God has spoken to Abraham before the details of 11, verse 32 and 31. Now, you may have a translation or note in your Bible that says, the Lord had said to Abram in verse 1. See, Abe is told to leave his father's house. He's told to leave his former country and go. Christian history is largely understood that this revelation was given to Abraham as he left Ur and before he got to Haran. So when his father passed away, Abraham already knew that God had made a call and a promise on his life. And as readers, we should be shocked. When I read this, I didn't hear any loud, audible gasps. But we should be shocked that Abraham was the man. Abraham would become and currently is such a central figure in Christian tradition. We forget who he was, the normal Abe, before he became famous. Abraham is known as the father of faith, the patriarch, who was a faithful follower. And from his family came the nation of Israel. But at the time, at the time, thousands of years ago, when this was taking place, was Abraham the prime candidate 
to be called by God and used in a mighty way? Well, I would argue no. What kind of resume did he have? Was Abraham experienced in following God and leading others? Did he have a history of making wise choices and doing the right thing, perhaps? Well, the candidate pool, I think, had some options. We read later on in Genesis 14, there's this guy named Melchizedek. He's a godly man who faithfully followed God. Surely God could have used him. Well, many academics understand that our man Job, who we just finished our series in this fall, in this winter, Job was around during Abraham's time. Surely God could have used Job. But no, God spoke to Abraham. And we do read later on in the biblical account in Joshua 24 that Abraham was involved in false idol worship when he lived in Ur. Now that region, specifically the city of Ur, was built by this guy who built the town and dedicated it to the moon god Nana. Yeah, kids, that that was the moon god's name, Nana. Culturally, these people, and Abraham included in this family, they would offer sacrifices and pray to the moon. And as they prayed to the moon, they would seek to invoke some kind of blessing, maybe in a Christmas season, in a winter solstice. They would pray for fertile crops and healthy, fruitful families and livestock. And this is how Abraham grew up. Abraham grew up worshiping the moon, seeking blessing from his own performance, hoping that Nana would give him his best life now, hashtag blessed. Now, we often forget or are unaware, or we just skip those details in verse 1, and we think because it's the Old Testament, it's just some common thing. No, 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 my friends. God graciously initiates a pagan worshiper. He enters into relationship with him. Abraham didn't earn it. That's that's sheer grace. And so it is with us today. God has not entered into a relationship with you and I because our lives look great. God has always graciously taken the first step, even when we are lost in a dark world, Even when we don't have it all figured out, even when we lived our lives contrary to him, he takes the initiative and seeks us out. And so here's the reminder for you and I this morning. Regardless of what you have worshipped in the past, regardless of whatever pagan lifestyle you think you've led, regardless of the sin you have or are currently loving, Regardless of your oblivion to his reality, power, sovereignty, or work in this world, even if, like Abraham, you know nothing, there is grace for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God calls us out of darkness into the light. God calls flawed, imperfect people like you and I. And he has great plans and purposes for us, just as he did with Abraham. That's good news. I know you're excited. It's the Minnesota way. I I, I can feel it. The Lord is so kind in initiating God who bends towards us when we didn't deserve it. Yes, God calls us out of darkness. 
But I want to get into the details of this promise specifically to Abraham and consider God's promise to bring true greatness. So I want us to sit on verse 2 for a moment. Now, If Abraham were to leave his country, if he were to leave his family traditions and venture out on this journey of faith, God promises Abraham that he will be made a great nation, that God will bless him and make his name great. And we don't use this word in our contemporary world as much, but this is what we call covenant language. God is binding himself to Abraham, entering into a relationship with with him based on a promise. God is unilaterally making lofty promises to him, and God will be the one who makes those promises come to pass. Now, the idea of greatness is actually a little bit of a play on words. Back in Genesis 11, we have this historical narrative, you may be familiar, called the Tower of Babel. And if you're not familiar, the scripture says there was a time in this world where humanity was not split and divided by language and culture. And the plan these people made in Genesis 11.4 was to build a city and a tower reaching all the way to the heavens so they could, quote, make a name for ourselves. Falling into a similar trap as Adam and Eve, these people wanted to be the God of their own life, to make their name great, to dictate life as they saw fit. And as history documents, God scattered these people, tore down their clever plans to make themselves great. So fast forward, we come to our passage And a promise where God is offering greatness and elevation and honor. In contrast to people producing their own greatness, God is determining who is and what is great. So what we find in verse 2 here in our passage is that what makes something or someone great is its connection to God himself. So even today, whether it's the room we sit in right now called the Great Hall, or politicians promising to make things great again in our country, there are only two options, my friends. We can try to manufacture greatness, our own name, our own comfort, and our own glory. Or we can enter into the greatness that God has designed for people made in his image. A passage like this forces us to contemplate Whether we are seeking the greatness of Genesis 11 or we are seeking the greatness of Genesis 12, only one is truly great. Only one is connected to God himself. But there's also something of a shift here in our passage, a shift in God's working in human history. See, up to this point, an individual has been God's representative. See, first we had Adam. And he was to reflect and represent God, but he and his wife, they failed. And then we come across a man named Noah. God was going to start clean and fresh, and Noah and his family were true followers of God. Maybe they would bring peace and restoration the world was after. Well, not too long after the flood, we find Noah is just as sinful and flawed as the rest of us. See, here in redemptive history, we see something of a shift as God chooses to no longer just have one man be his representative and bless the world, but rather this great nation will be the conduit in which others will be blessed throughout history. 
Which leads us, I think, to consider something that often gets overlooked in this passage. God promises true greatness to Abraham and his family. But to what end? What is the point of being connected to God and greatness? What is the end result? What is the chief aim of greatness in God's economy? Well, surely, surely Abraham's greatness is meant to bring respect and honor and street cred to him. Abraham's greatness is so he can build his own personal brand on social media and create master classes for all his followers to pay for. Well, maybe Abraham can be great so that he can be on the moral high ground and look self-righteously down on others. That's greatness, perhaps. Look again at the last phrase of verse 2. So that you will be a blessing. God makes lofty promises to Abraham so that he will serve and bless others. God invites Abraham into that greatness and blessing, not so Abe and his family can hoard or enjoy comfort. The aim is that Abraham would view his life and leverage his life for the sake of blessing other people. Old Testament and new, faithful followers of Christ are meant to have an other's orientation about their life, an other's orientation. So maybe God today, this morning, has given you a great family. Use it to bless and serve others. Maybe God has given you a great house. Use it to bless and serve others. Maybe God's given you a great measure of wealth. A great amount of time in the season, perhaps. Maybe God's given you a great mind. He's given you a great amount of suffering and wisdom. He's given you great skill set and ability. Wonderful. You've been truly blessed. Now stop for a minute and ask yourself why God has blessed you. Why has God given you something that he hasn't given someone else, perhaps? Like Abraham, we are not self-made men and women. What do we have that we have not received from God? So same as Abraham, we are called and invited into a relationship with a great God who graciously gives great gifts so that we would be a blessing to other people. Now, very specifically, God is intended for Abraham and for you and I to bring a spiritual blessing to others. It's not simply about sharing material stuff, but pointing people to the ultimate blessing of salvation of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. God uses his people for the ultimate aim of restoring people's hearts and souls. The gospel of Christ is our ultimate aim as faithful followers of Christ. Yes, we serve. Yes, we actively participate in worthwhile social causes. So we build, we serve food, and we do all the rest. But as Jesus said, what benefit if they have the world but lose their soul? We want the people around us to know the blessing of a relationship with the creator of the universe. So then the question for you and I on a Sunday morning to consider is this. 
Who are you actively seeking to bless spiritually? If God has invited us into a relationship, just as he did with Abraham, if his purpose with Abraham wasn't simply to give him a land flowing with milk and honey, iPhones and Starbucks, but rather he's blessed Abraham so that he would bless others. He'd make his name great, not for his own convenience and comfort, but for others, ultimately spiritually. And this is what we call the matrix effect, where we come in and we plug up and we download and we know Kung Fu now. We know the scriptures. We're, we're taught the basics of Christianity. We say, I got it. I'm connected to God's greatness in Christ. So that you would bless others, especially spiritually. So whether that's someone that you know close to you who do, does not know Jesus, or you're in a room like this and you're all wearing name tags and you need to spiritually bless and encourage the person next to you. That's the greatness that God has called you into, brothers and sisters. Which I think, very naturally, leads us to our last consideration. God's plan to bring blessing. Now, remember, we're kind of left still hanging here with that question. How do I get blessing in life? Is there some kind of formula? Well, maybe it's a karma thing where I pay it forward, and then in the drive-thru at Culver's, someone will bless me. Does my moral performance maybe dictate what I get? Do I have to earn blessing? What does Christmas really have to do with it at all? Well, let's again read verse 3. God promises and continues with Abraham and says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this verse may bring a measure of confusion as we read over it. It can almost read as though we have to worship Abraham in some kind of way in order to get blessing. Well, here's how one writer helpfully commented on this verse. God mediates his blessing to the nations through Abraham and his family. So essentially, if the world wants to truly, if we want to truly experience blessing, we have to get it through Abraham and his family. His families, they're being told that they're going to be the conduit in which all the families in the world get blessing. So as we read, Moses, the author, is aiming, I think, to turn our attention back to creation and Genesis 3. So consider this pattern for a moment, and I'll put a slide up here on the screen. We've mentioned these guys already, but I think there's more depth and uh, info for not just our text, but the story as a whole. Uh, Adam and Eve were promised an offspring that would come and crush the head of that serpent and restore the world back to paradise in the garden. So Adam, he had three sons. Abel, Cain, and Seth. And we come to find out that those boys weren't the offspring. None of them brought creation, the creational order, back from chaos and sin. But not long after, we see we have another father, Noah. Noah was a new kind of Adam in a way, a new start to humanity. And he also had three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
But what we come to discover is that none of those boys were the offspring either. Instead of crushing snakes and evil, we find them just as sinful and flawed as their drunken father. No new Adam here, no new paradise. Well, the account of Terah starts, and we get another picture of kind of a, a new sort of Adam, another father, who had three boys, Abe, Naor, and Haran. And we read in Genesis 11 that Terah dies, no snakes crushed. Haran dies, no snakes crushed. Nahor, he doesn't seem to get a lot of ink in the text. He's not bringing paradise and restoration. What we come to realize in our passage is that the promised offspring of Adam and Eve is still coming to fruition. And now we have more clarity who it's coming through personally. It's going to come through Abraham. Abraham is part of the family tree, part of a great nation that will be blessed and bless the world and bring salvation and restoration and blessing to everyone. And we know this question of blessing has been lingering for some time. In Genesis 1 through 11, the word bless or blessing uh, comes up in our text five times in 11 chapters. <laughs> but, but here in three verses, we get blessing five times. Here's how one academic wrote. The fivefold repetition of the word blessing in Genesis 12 indicates that the call of Abram would change this situation. Broken relationships are to be potentially and progressively repaired. The ruptured relationships that had developed between man and God or man and man are to be eventually restored. The new powerful word calling Abram out of Ur is to cancel or annul the curse of Genesis 1 through 11. But as readers, at least for me, as a reader, I still have questions as I read this. How can one man bless all the families of the earth? How can Abe be that one man? His wife can't have children. And what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, we covered this in the fall of 2021 in our series, Jesus is Enough. But let's hear again how Scripture explains Scripture. How Paul applies Genesis 12, and I'll read a portion of Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, uh, justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So here's the point of it all. Christmas celebrates a point of time in human history where God was bringing to pass the restoration and the blessing that the world had so longed for and been waiting. The birth of Jesus, as we said last week, is the arrival of the offspring who would crush evil and bring restoration. The birth of Jesus, the last Adam, the true nation, the true son of Abraham, is the one who has long been promised to bring about blessing. Not just to some ethnic minority in the Middle East, but as God said to Abraham, to all the families of the earth. 
The birth of Jesus answers sometimes the implicit question of, I mean, it's hanging in the back of our minds in a Christmas season, how can I know blessing, peace, joy, contentment? How can I obtain those things? How can I tap into the greatness of God? How can I be a part of something so much bigger than myself? How can I seek to bless others with the resources and the life that God has given me? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings blessing. Now, brothers and sisters, the great pole and the sin of our hearts is to seek blessing, but to look everywhere except the one who's meant to bring it. And I don't want to project on you, but this is, this is the danger and the toil of my own heart day after day, week after week. Will I obtain blessing from the one who's promised to give it? From the one who came and yes, he was born and he lived and he died and he rose again to bring blessing? Or will I seek for it everywhere else? So true blessing this year will not come from how you look. True blessing this year will not come depending on who you sleep with. How plentiful the gifts are. How secure the bank account is. Whether your preferences and identity are affirmed. Or how well maintained your earthly relationships are. None of those things will bring that true blessing that your heart is after. Blessing comes from the son of Abraham. Blessing comes from trusting and living for another. Blessing comes from Christ. Look to him in a fresh way this Christmas season. Would you pray with me? that God would enable us to do that this week? Father, we come, and that is a big prayer, that Abraham's blessing would be manifest in our life, that the blessing of God wouldn't be some vague, distant thing that we hope comes. Blessing won't come because we show up and have church attendance. It won't come as we try to manufacture it in ourselves. But blessing comes from the greatness of God, and by faith we are connected to that in Christ. So we praise you, God, that Jesus is Abraham's blessing, that he is, as Matthew 1 says, the son of Abraham, the one who was purposed before the foundation of the world to come, to live, to die and to bring new life to our hearts, not just someday in heaven, but now. So, Father, would you graciously, this week, tomorrow, as we engage on a Monday morning in the life that you've given us, would you help us to cherish the blessing of Christ, and as we tap into that greatness, to be a spiritual blessing to the people around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.